The Art of Dying Well by St. Robert Bellarmine Chapter 15 The Fifteenth Precept On Matrimony The sacrament of matrimony comes next. It has a twofold institution. One, as it is a civil contract by the natural law. Another, as it is a sacrament by the law of the gospel. Of both institutions we shall briefly speak, not absolutely, but only as regarding teaching us how to live well so that we may die well. Its first institution was made by God in paradise. For these words of God, it is not good for man to be alone, cannot properly be understood unless they have relation to some means of propagating the human race. St. Augustine justly remarks that in no way does the man stand in need of the woman, except in bringing forth and educating children. For in other things men derive more assistance from their fellow men than from women. Wherefore, a little after the woman had been formed, Adam, divinely inspired, said, A man shall leave his father and mother, and cleave to his wife. And these words our Lord and St. Matthew attributes to God, saying, Have you not read that he who made man from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be in one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Chapter 19 Our Lord here attributes these words to God, because Adam spoke them not as coming from himself, but from the divine inspiration. Such was the first institution of matrimony. Another institution, or rather exaltation, of matrimony to the dignity of a sacrament is found in St. Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. This is a great sacrament. But I speak in Christ and in the Church. Chapter 5, verses 31 and 32 That matrimony is a true sacrament, St. Augustine proves in his book on A Good Husband. He says, In our marriages more account is made of the sanctity of the sacrament than fecundity of birth. And in the twenty-fourth chapter he says again, Among all nations and peoples, the advantage of marriage consists in being the means of producing children in the faith of chastity. But, as regards the people of God, it also consists in the sanctity of the sacrament. And in his book on Faith and Works, he says, In the city of the Lord and in his holy mount, that is, in his church, marriage is not only a bond, it is also considered to be a sacrament. But on this point I need say nothing more. It only remains that I explain how men and women united in matrimony should so live that they may die a good death. There are three blessings arising from matrimony, 
if it be made a good use of, viz. children, fidelity, and the grace of the sacrament. The generation of children, together with their proper education, must be had in view if we would make a good use of matrimony. But on the contrary, he commits a most grievous sin who seeks only carnal pleasure in it. Hence Onan, one of the children of the patriarch Judah, is most severely blamed in Scripture for not remembering this, which was to abuse and not use the holy sacrament. But if it sometimes happen that married people should be oppressed with the number of their children, whom through poverty they cannot easily support, there is a remedy pleasing to God, and this is by mutual consent to separate from the marriage bed and spend their days in prayer and fasting. For if it be agreeable to him for married persons to grow old in virginity, after the example of the Blessed Virgin and St. Joseph, whose lives the Emperor Henry and his wife Cunegunda endeavored to imitate, as well as King Edward and Agdida, Eliezer, a knight, and his lady Delphina, and several others, why should it be displeasing to God or men that married people should not live together as man and wife by mutual consent, that so they may spend the rest of their days in prayer and fasting? Again, it is a most grievous sin for people united in matrimony and blessed with children to neglect them or their pious education, or to allow them to want for the necessaries of life. On this point, we have many examples, both in sacred and profane history. But as I wish to be concise, I shall be content with adducing one only from the first book of Kings. In that day I shall raise up against Eli all the things I have spoken concerning his house. I will begin, and I will make an end. For I have foretold unto him that I will judge his house for ever for iniquity, because he knew that his sons did wickedly and did not chastise them. Therefore have I sworn to the house of Eli, that the iniquity of his house shall not be expiated with victims, nor offerings, for ever. Chapter 3, verses 12 and following. Reader's Note The first book of Kings in the Old Reckoning is the first book of Samuel in today's reckoning. These threats God shortly after fulfilled. For the sons of Eli were slain in battle, and Eli himself, falling from his seat, backwards, broke his neck, and died miserably. Wherefore, if Eli, otherwise a just man and an upright judge of the people, perished miserably with his sons, because he did not educate them as he ought to have done, and did not chastise them when they became wicked, what will become of those who do not only do not endeavor to educate their children properly, but by their bad example encourage their children to sin. Truly, 
They can expect nothing less than a horrible death for themselves and their children, unless they repent in time and do suitable penance. Another blessing, and that a most noble one, is the grace of the sacrament, which God himself pours into the hearts of pious married, married persons. Provided the marriage be duly celebrated, and the individuals found to be well disposed and prepared. This grace, not to mention other blessings it brings with it, helps in a wonderful manner to produce love and peace between married people, although the different dispositions and manners of each other are capable of sowing discord. But, above all things, an imitation of the union of Christ with the Church makes marriage most sweet and blessed. Of this the Apostle thus speaks in his epistle to the Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ also loved the Church, and delivered himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, cleansing it by the labor of water, in the word of life, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. Chapter 5, verses 25 and following. The apostle admonishes women also, saying, Let women be subject to their husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so also let the wives be to their husbands in all things. The Apostle concludes, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular love his wife as himself, and let the wife fear her husband. If these words of the Apostle be diligently considered, they will make our marriage blessed in heaven and on earth. But we will briefly explain the meaning of St. Paul's words. First, he exhorts husbands that they love their wives as Christ has loved the church. Christ certainly loved his church with a love of friendship, not with a love of concupiscence. He sought the good of the church, the safety of the church, not his own utility or his own pleasure. Therefore, they do not imitate Christ who love their wives on account of their beauty, being captivated by the love thereof, or on account of their rich dowry or valuable inheritance. For such love not their spouse, but themselves, desiring to satisfy the concupiscence of the flesh or the concupiscence of their eyes, which is called avarice. Thus Solomon, wise in the beginning, but in the end unwise, loved his wives and his concubines not with the love of friendship, but with the love of concupiscence, desiring not to benefit them, but to satisfy his own concupiscence, wherewith, being blinded, he did not hesitate to sacrifice to strange gods lest he should grieve in the least his mistresses. Now, 
that Christ, in his marriage with his church, did not seek himself, that is, did not seek his own utility or pleasure, but the good of his spouse, is evident from the following words. He delivered himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, cleansing it by the labor of water in the word of life. This indeed is true and perfect charity, to deliver oneself to punishment for the eternal welfare of the church, his spouse. But not only did our Savior love the church with a love of friendship, not concupiscence, but also he loved it not for a time, but with a perpetual love. For as he never laid aside his human nature, which he once assumed, so also he united his spouse to himself in a bond of indissoluble marriage. With a perpetual love have I loved thee, saith he by the prophet Jeremiah. This is the reason why marriage is indissoluble among Christians because it is a sacrament signifying the union of Christ with his church, while marriage among the pagans and Jews could be dissolved in certain cases. The same apostle afterwards teaches women to be subject to their husbands as the church is subject to Christ. <laughs> Jezebel did not observe this precept, for as she wished to rule her husband, she lost herself and him, together with all their children. And would that there were not so many females in these days who endeavor to rule over their husbands. But perhaps the fault is in their men, who do not know how to retain their superiority. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, was so subject to her husband that she called him Lord. I am grown old, and my Lord is an old man, etc. And this obedience of Sarah, St. Peter in his first epistle, thus praises. For after this manner, holy women also, being in subjection to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Now, it may seem strange that the holy apostles Peter and Paul should be continually exhorting husbands to love their wives and wives to fear their husbands. But if they be subject to their husbands, should they not also love them? A wife ought to love her husband and be loved in return by him. But she should love him with fear and reverence, so that her love should not prevent her reverence. Otherwise she might become a tyrant. Delilah mocked her husband Samson, though such a strong man. Not as a man, but as a slave she mocked him. And in the book of Ezra it is related of a king how being captivated with love for his concubine, he suffered her to sit at his right hand. But she took the crown from the king's head and put it on her own, and even struck the king himself. 
Wherefore, we must not be surprised at the Almighty, having said to the first woman, Thou shalt be under thy husband's power, and he shall have dominion over thee. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 Hence a husband requires no little wisdom to love and at the same time govern his wife, to admonish her and teach her also and, if necessary, even correct her. We have an example in St. Monica, the mother of St. Augustine. Her husband was a cruel man and a pagan, and yet she bore with him so piously and prudently that she always was loved by him, and at length she converted him to God. End of chapter 15